The following address was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. And now, a keynote address, How to Defeat Antisemitism by Rabbi Moshe Brisky. Thank you very much, Rabbi Epstein. Thank you to all the speakers that spoke earlier and inspired us. You know, I realize it's been 18 months since I stood at a podium and saw people. <laughs> I've been so used to sitting in front of a laptop, clicking Zoom. So it's great to see you. You know, the advantage of Zoom is they have this little click that you do and it says mute all. <laughs> it's so powerful. You can have 700 people watching you click, psh. But the disadvantage of it was I found out the first time I gave a sermon on Zoom and I opened with a joke and no one laughed. <laughs> it's so hard to tell a joke without laughter that I stopped doing it. So for 18 months, I haven't told a joke. And so ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> in the early 1970s, the premier of the Communist Soviet Union was Leonard Brezhnev. And he announces to the Politburo that he's making a state visit to Poland. And in honor of that trip, he wants to bring the Polish people a momentous gift. It's decided that Brezhnev will bring a large painting entitled Lenin in Poland. After all, what could be a more meaningful expression of Soviet-Polish solidarity than the portrait of Lenin, the good Soviet communist, visiting Poland? Unfortunately, Lenin never visited Poland. And so the artists had nothing to work with to come up with any type of drawing. And time is running short. And the Soviet leadership is growing desperate. Finally, it's decided we have no choice. We have to turn to Rabinowitz. Rabinowitz has been this Jewish dissident that's been arrested by the KGB every other day, tortured by the KGB for his outspokenness against the communists, for his desire to leave and emigrate to Israel. But he was also known as the best artist in the Soviet Union. And so Rabinowitz is called to the Politburo and he's told, listen, we know we have our differences, but here's the deal. We need a portrait of Lenin in Poland. And if you do so, we will give you a beautiful apartment and lots of work. Rabinowitz thinks, Lenin in Poland, I can do it. You have three weeks until Brezhnev leaves, I can do it. It comes a day before the visit is to take place. Rabinowitz is brought to the Kremlin, he's brought to a conference room, and the Politburo and Brezhnev make their way into the conference room. Rabinowitz is standing there with an easel, and the cloth covering the painting, and Brezhnev barks his order, take off the cloth, let's see it. And Rabinowitz, with this little smirk, takes the cloth off the portrait, and there's a gasp in the room. Because the painting has this 
man and woman in this somewhat romantic setting. Who's the man? Someone yells at Rabinowitz. The man? That's Leon Trotsky. And who's the woman? That's Krupaskaya. That's Lenin's wife. Brezhnev yells, but where's Lenin? Lenin's in Poland. You don't mess with old Jews. My friends, for as long as there have been Jews, there have been two unwavering constants, anti-Semitism and Jewish jokes about anti-Semitism. Jokes and comedy and laughter. It's a very big part of our culture from Jack Benny to Groucho Marx, Mel Brooks to Joan Rivers and to Jackie Mason of blessed memory. Jews have been among the trailblazers of comedy. We're good at it. We're especially good at laughing at ourselves. And many will point to comedy and laughter as having served as this defense mechanism in the face of constant onslaughts of anti-Semitism. You see, rather than cry, we choose to laugh. We laugh our way through life. We laugh our way through history. In fact, the very first Jewish child born was named Yitzchak. What does Yitzchak mean? He will laugh. Now, it's rather ironic that when we look at the life and times of Isaac, of Yitzchak, and we look at his personality, none of it comes as being particularly funny. I mean, being bound as a sacrifice on the top of the mountain is not the most humorous Bible story. I don't think anyone was laughing. And he had these major conflicts with the Plishtim, the Philistines, to contend with. If you remember the story from the book of Genesis, a famine breaks out in the land in Canaan, forces Isaac to relocate to Gerar, and just like his father Abraham had done years before, after some initial trauma wherein his wife was kidnapped by Abimelech, the king of Philistines, they enter into a peace treaty. And in an almost exact replay of what happened with his father Abraham, Abimelech tells Isaac that he can feel free to settle and prosper in the land without any fear of harassment. But of course, just like with Abraham, those words would prove to be an empty promise. Isaac goes ahead and he reopens the wells of fresh water that his father had dug and the plishtim had stuffed up. Now with these new sources of irrigation, Isaac plants crops and builds flocks and herds, and he becomes highly successful. Everything that Isaac touches turns to gold. But the more successful he becomes, the more envious and resentful his neighbors become. So what do they do? They stuff the wells. Again and again this takes place in the Bible. Isaac digs a well, they stuff up the well. And this continues an entire portion in the Torah talking about the wells that Isaac dug and that the Pelishtim stuffed up until finally he keeps doing it and there's a well and they don't contest it and they don't stuff it up and he calls it Rechovot, which means wide open. For the Lord has granted us ample space and we will flourish in the land. But I want to focus on that one line, that one verse that Abimelech says to Isaac, you have become too powerful for us. This is a complaint our people would be hearing many times throughout our history. You Jews are just too powerful. 
When Isaac's children and grandchildren go down to Egypt, Pharaoh invokes the same trope, almost verbatim. mimenu. These Israelites are greater in number and power than us. Before you know it, they'll overtake us. Let's devise a smart plan on how to deal with the Jewish problem. Sound familiar? Already back then, already back then, the envy and the hatred towards the Jews was there. Is it any wonder that anti-Semitism is described by historians as the longest hate? Because that's what it is. Ever since the first Jew walked the face of the earth, there's been one group or another there to hate us and to seek to destroy us. And to whose benefit? Look at what those moronic short-sighted Plishtim did to get to Isaac. They stuff up wells of fresh water that could help them. Instead of saying to Isaac, teach us how you do it, we can use the same type of engineering that you came up with to dig these wells. Help us. And Isaac certainly would have lent a hand. But no, instead of doing that, they stuff them up because they're so blinded by the hate. And it harmed them so much more than it harmed Isaac. And it lends the truth to the aphorism, more than hate destroys the hated, it destroys the hater. So how does Isaac deal with the situation? How did Isaac deal with anti-Semitism in his day and age? What was our patriarch's response to the anti-Semitism of his time? He just keeps on digging. Defeated once, he'll dig again and again and again until, until he succeeds. Ladies and gentlemen, this message is so relevant and applicable to our own times. As we all know, in recent years, we've been seeing a disturbance increase in anti-Semitism and violence around the world, even right here in the United States, to where it can no longer be ignored. In Europe, of course, we've been seeing this creeping resurgence of overt anti-Semitism for some time now. Jews in Rome and in Paris and in Copenhagen and in Istanbul and Berlin and other places have been attacked. In Russia and in the Ukraine, there have been physical assaults and vandalism at Jewish homes and synagogues. In the United States, we're all devastated by the horrific massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and then the vicious attack at Chabad of Poway and the recent attack on the rabbi at the Shiloh House in Boston. Assaults on defenseless Jews in religious neighborhoods, especially in Brooklyn, New York, have been way up. And we all know there have been these certain political figures who are tweeting these age-old anti-Semitic propaganda against Israel and against Jews, and yes, they are one and the same. And perhaps nowhere is anti-Semitism more openly displayed in this country than on the college campuses where our Jewish sons and daughters are being confronted by haters with twisted minds who threaten and shout them down. And yes, Ben and Jerry's may come up with many flavors of ice cream, but for us, it's just one single flavor. Anti-Semitism by any other name is just anti-Semitism. Whether it comes from self-hating Jews from Vermont or Islamic fundamentalists in Iran or hoodlums in the streets of Brooklyn. The first and perhaps most salient point to be made 
for each and every single one of us to know is that we share a special bond with one another. It's not simply because we're a minority nation and thus feel the need to stick up for one another. It runs much deeper than that. It's a bond that's rooted in our common lineage and history of our shared mission, of our spiritual identity, of our shared fate and destiny. Intuitively, we know that we're in this together, that an attack on any one of us, anywhere in the world, is an attack on us all. In response to comments made by certain members of the United States Congress about Jewish money and influence, Professor Alan Dershowitz wrote a column in which he addressed the question, are Jews really too powerful? And basically what he said is that when he hears that Jews are too powerful, his response is, no, we're not powerful enough. When he hears that APAC is too influential, he says, it must become even more influential. When he hears that we contribute too much money to causes, he says, we have to contribute even more. When he hears that Jews control the media, he says, ha, if we control the media, why is there so much anti-Israel bias in the media? When he hears that we have too much influence on the outcome of elections, he says, we need more influence in this country. The fact is that Jews have contributed immensely to America's success, be it in the academia world, in the science, in medicine, in religion, in politics, and in economics, and in technology, or any other arena vital to the human condition. Jews have had a disproportionately positive impact. We have earned the right to act as first-class citizens in this country, and we have nothing to hide. Any, any knowledgeable, honest, and objective student of history will acknowledge that so many of the concepts and ideas that civilization now takes for granted were not always the ways of the world. They were not part of the fabric of society until Judaism introduced them to the world. Concepts like monotheism and equal justice for all and the value of a single life and the quest for peace and a Sabbath day and the importance of education and charity and repairing the world. These are ideas and approaches that were not only revolutionary when first introduced, they were completely at odds with the conventional wisdom of their times. It took hundreds, sometimes thousands of years for the world to come around to embracing the wisdom offered by the family of Abraham. This is something almost any and every respected non-Jewish hysterian will tell you. And yet, while the world was absorbing Jewish inventions and innovations into their culture, they were simultaneously persecuting and often attempting to destroy us, ultimately to their own detriment. Because for all the mayhem and destructions the haters cause, they end up hurting themselves more than anyone else. Look at what happened to all the countries, all across Europe, that became Judenrein, that cleared the Jews out of their country. How did they fear as a result? It's just like the stories of the Plishtim stuffing up the wells. Israel turns the Gaza Strip with Gush Katif and other Jewish settlements over to the Palestinians including beautiful buildings and these massive greenhouses that grew beautiful flowers and vegetables 
What did they do the second they got there? They burned them to the ground. Consumed with their hatred, they destroyed resources that they could have used. So too powerful? No. History has proven that Jews need more power. Jews need more influence than any other group to secure their safety. During the 1930s and early 40s, Jews had morality on their side. But they lacked the power and the influence to back up that moral standing. There was no Israel and little political influence in the United States. And the results of that weakness was catastrophic. And so we say never again, never again. In the Middle East, Israel must have more military power than all of its enemies combined. As has famously been said, if Israel were to lay down its arms, there would be no more Israel, God forbid. If the Arabs were to lay down their arms, there would be no more war. Israel must therefore always maintain its military superiority in this region with increased threats not only on its immediate borders but also from non-Arab countries like Iran. Israel must get stronger, not weaker, even though it has its current military advantages. About a year and a half ago, Germany's commissioner on anti-Semitism issued a declaration, and he urged Jews to avoid wearing yarmulkes. Don't wear the kippah in public in parts of the country, claiming it isn't safe. Now, however well-meaning Commissioner Felix Klein may have been with his precautionary warnings, this is exactly the slippery slope that gets us into trouble. And in responding to Mr. Klein's recommendation, Israel's president at the time, Ruvain Rivlin, called it a capitulation. In his words, we will never submit, we will never lower our gaze, and we will never react to anti-Semitism with defeatism. And we expect and demand that our allies act in the same way. A few days after, Germany's most popular daily newspaper called The Bild, they published a cut-out keeper on its front page. And they urged readers to wear the cut-out keeper as a mark of solidarity with the Jewish community in the face of rising anti-Semitism. And they even posted a video on its website showing how to make your keeper. Wear it, they wrote, so that your friends and neighbors can see it. Explain to your children what the keeper is. Post a photograph of yourself with the keeper on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Go out in the streets and wear it, because if the commissioner's call to the Jewish community is allowed to stand, then we have again failed in the face of our history. Indeed, the days of submission and capitulation must be behind us. If that is true for our brothers and sisters in Europe, how much more so must it be for us here in the United States? Folks, at the end of the day, anti-Semitism is not based on rationality or even sanity. It comes from an emptiness and darkness that pervades the souls of those governed by feelings of hate and inadequacy. As such, there is no point to trying to address it on its terms. And that's why the Lubavitcher Rebbe would always say, the only way to dispel the darkness is by saturating the world with light.
more and more light. For every bit of hate, we must double the amount of love. For every act of violence, we must triple our acts of kindness. For every argument advanced for us to run and hide from who we are, we must quadruple our efforts to stand strong with the ideals that have enabled us to illuminate the world for 3,000 years. The point is that our enemies do not get to define us. We get to define us. Our enemies don't set our agenda. We set our agenda. This, again, is something the Rebbe would often counsel us as it relates to anti-Semitism. Don't make Judaism all about fighting the negativity of anti-Semitism. Make it about the positivity of Yiddishkeit, of Jewish observance, of practicing with pride and with devotion. Look, it's certainly understandable that people who are unused to dealing with overt acts of anti-Semitism, as most American Jews are, might react by wanting us to avoid any risk. But that's the wrong answer to hate. The right answer is to be more open about your Jewish identity. And as awful as recent events have been, it should be reasons for Jews to show up and be counted more often, not less. Of course, we absolutely must do everything in our power in the realm of practicality to deal with issues at hand because anti-Semitism is a thing and there are lunatics out there. And if we have to have better security, we'll have better security. If we have to put up gates and fences and security guards, we do that. But at the same time, let's bear in mind in the words of King David, Im Hashem lo yishma shav shomer. If God doesn't guard the city, the guard that's there keeps it in vain, watches in vain. Ultimately, our fate is in God's hands, and it's his protection that we depend upon. So although we do everything physically possible in the realm of nature, we have to turn to God and ask that he bless our efforts for success. In that vein, let's make sure to keep God's blessings with us at all times. Let's make sure to have proper and kosher mezuzahs on our doors, and if we already have them, find someone that doesn't and inspire them to put up a mezuzah on the front door. Don't hide your Jewish pride. Show your Jewish pride. And if you don't own a pair of tefillin yet, this is the time to do so. That's your statement against the haters of Jews. More pride, more tradition, more mitzvot. And if you don't light the Shabbat candles yet, take it upon yourself. Make that resolution here, not just tomorrow that you'll light the Shabbat candles as you are at the retreat, but when you come home. And again, those that light the Shabbat candles, take upon yourself a resolution for this upcoming year. One woman a month that you will inspire to light Shabbat candles. Twelve women for the year. It's doable. And if we each do it, and we each inspire others to do it, the light that we will bring to the world, that's the greatest response against those that try to destroy us. I think we can all take a page out of the George Rohr playbook. Instead of cowing to the fear of anti-Semitism on the college campuses and focusing on security guards at college campuses, this great philanthropist teamed up with Chabad Lubavitch with the help of Rabbi Moshe Kotlarski as a partnership with Chabad to help launch a worldwide expansion of Chabad centers on college campuses everywhere 
so that Jewish students could stand tall with strength and with pride and with determination and with courage. To date, over 260 campuses have a Chabad presence, and the list continues to grow day by day. And you saw this on stage here. You saw this moments ago with your own eyes as these students came up and they talk about their Jewish pride. That's the response to anti-Semitism. That's how we change the world. We don't hide. We don't run. We keep digging those wells. That's what Isaac did. That's what we do. Allow me to conclude with one final story. Gideon Katz, or Gidi as he was known, was one of the most respected jet fighter pilots in the Israeli Air Force. He was admired for his sharp mind, for his lightning quick instincts. All pilots respected Gideon. Gidi was a real top gun. And his personality matched his military record in that he always kept his emotions in check. He maintained even keel knowing that his next mission, whenever it would come to pass, would require focus and balance. And from his teen years, Giddy Katz always took a strong interest in the Holocaust. You see, his grandmother, Safto Buria, he knew was a Holocaust survivor. Although Buria never spoke about the Holocaust to Giddy, he knew that she was there. And so the Holocaust played a role. Religion observance was not part of his life. But he was always interested to learn about the Holocaust. And one day, Giddy's commanding officer approached him with an offer. He said, you know, the Israeli Air Force is taking its pilots, for those that would like to go, on a tour of Europe, and they're going to visit some of the concentration camps to know what you're really fighting for. Would you like to come? And Giddy jumped at the opportunity. And before saying goodbye to his mom going on this trip, his mom said, look, Giddy, I know you're not so religious, but I want to give you something to hold on to. Here is this little Tehillim. It's a pocket book of Psalms. Just keep it in your pocket. Keep it wherever you go. And maybe, maybe you'll ever be inspired. You can take it out. You can read some of them. Out of respect for his mom, he took the little Tehillim, put it in his pocket, and then he took it with him. The tour group took the Israeli military men to the main concentration camps and their surrounding cities. And after touring some of the larger cities, they stopped off in another place called Stotov. Well, Stotov is not one of the most well-known of the larger camps, but it was a brutal camp. They murdered 85,000 Jews at the small concentration camp in Stotov. The soldiers are walking around the eerie grounds of Stotov. Gidi is taken into the experience, horrified that this small place could have murdered 85,000 members of his family. And he was shocked to hear that even in the small concentration camp, there was a gas chambers, and there was a crematorium. And he starts walking closer to the gas chambers, and he walks inside, and suddenly he can't breathe. He's choking, because he's envisioning in this room, in this room, 85,000 of our people walked here, their final steps in this world. How could this have happened? And he can't, he can't take it anymore, so he takes a few steps out the door just to catch some breath. 
And as he makes it out into the air, suddenly his emotions change. And suddenly he feels triumph. He feels victory. Survival. We made it. Jubilation. Everything changed for him in that one moment. And Giddy, who, who never expressed emotion, suddenly feels the need to dance. A dance of victory. We survived. We're still here. We're still strong. And he wants to connect. But he has no Jewish experience. And he remembers, the only thing he remembers from a Jewish experience is that when he was a child, his father would take him to the shul on Simchat Torah. He remembers that, that they would dance with the Torah. They would hold the Torah and they would dance. And he reflects back at that moment and he starts remembering a song. And he starts singing outside a concentration camp. He doesn't have a Torah to hold. But he has this little pocket to heal him. So he takes this pocket to heal him. He's holding it up. And he's dancing, singing, Sisu besimchu besimcha Torah. He knows it's strange. It doesn't make sense to him, but he's doing it. At that moment, his cell phone rings. It's his mother. Ima, you'll never believe what's going on. I'm holding your Tehillim. I'm singing Sisu Besimcho Besimcha Torah. I'm in a place called Stotov. The phone goes silent. His mother says, Gidi, call Safta Buria, call her right now. Is something wrong? Call her right now. He hangs up from his mother and he calls Safta Buria. Gidi, how are you? She doesn't even know he's in Europe. He explains the army had a tour and that I wanted to go. I'm in a place called Stotov and Ima told me I needed to speak to you right away. Stotov? Giddy. I and my family were in Stotov. You lost members of your own family in Stotov. And Giddy starts saying, Safta, I'm touring. I'm outside the gas chambers right now. And this strange emotion came over, to, over me, a feeling of joy and jubilation and dancing. And I'm holding Ima's Tehillim in my hand and I'm dancing. And Safta Biria begins to cry. And he realizes this must be so painful for her to hear that her grandson is dancing outside a concentration camp where she was interned. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry bringing you so much pain. She says, no, 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 Giddy. It's not pain that I'm crying from. You need to know something. I came there when I was 10 years old. And my father, Gideon, after whom you're named, he was there too with the rest of our family. And I want you to know this, that I, my father, your grandfather, had a job there, your great-grandfather. He was a Sonder Commando. Sonder Commando commandos were those given the task 
of taking the dead bodies from the gas chambers and bringing them to the crematoriums. That was his task. One night after a full day of this horrific work, my father stepped outside with the others in his group. And when the Nazi Yamach Shemai stepped away for a cigarette break, my father spoke to the others. And he said, these Nazis have taken away our sense of humanity. We have been transformed into animals. But today is Simcha Torah. And even if it's difficult, let's dance right here, right by this gas chamber. Let us dance because we're not animals. We're Jews. We are Yidden. We are children of the Almighty. And they stood right outside those steps. And my father didn't have a Torah with him, but he had a torn page of a Siddur. So he held up this torn page of a Siddur. And together with his fellow Jews, they began dancing and they began singing, Sisu besimchu besimcha Torah. In the very same spot that you stand right now. At that point, Macho Giddy, the man who never let his emotions get the better of him, just broke down. Because he realized that his great-grandfather was communicating with him directly at that very moment, sending a song into his soul, sending an emotion into his soul. And it wasn't an emotion of sadness. It wasn't an emotion of tragedy. It was one of jubilation. It was one of triumph. It was one of victory. Sing, Giddy, sing, celebrate, Giddy, celebrate Judaism, Giddy. That moment changed his life. And he began pursuing his spiritual heritage. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not a broken people. For all we've been through, we have not responded with revenge and with hate. We have built families, we have built communities, we have revived our land and brought goodness into the world wherever we may have found ourselves. What greater victory against Hitler, Yamach Shemai, and all the anti-Semites of history is that the Jewish people today live as proud Jews, as strong Jews, as connected Jews. We are all survivors. We are all the continuation of the greatest story in the history of mankind. They tried to bury us, but they couldn't. For along the way, we were always planting seeds that were being planted to blossom and flourish once again. Every day, we, along with our families, have the opportunity to plant seeds and to dig new wells. And that's what we must do. And we do it with courage and with pride and with dignity and with strength. In combating the anti-Semitism of his time, our forefather Isaac provided us for the formula of how it's done. He went forth reopening the wellsprings that had been dug by his father, giving them the same names his father had given them. He continued to be the link in generations, faithful to what his father began. And even when they harassed him, he dug again, and he dug again. As the first Jewish child in history, 
Isaac demonstrated the faith of persistence and the courage of continuity. He showed us how to continue the journey of our ancestors. This is why it makes so much sense that his name is Laughter. Hazoyrim bedima barina yitzaru, those who sow with tears reap with joy. In the end, despite all the opposition and the envy and the hate, Isaac reached Rechovot. He had the last laugh, the euphoria of reaching the destination after the storms. We're told that when Mashiach comes and God brings this long exile to an end, ushering in a new era of peace and tranquility, there will be the sounding of the shofar gadol, a big shofar a piercing blast that will be heard around the world. The Hasidic master of Tzadak HaKohen says that it will be an, accu an accumulation of all the cries throughout all of the exiles. The cries of those that suffered at the hands of the Inquisition and the pogroms and the Holocaust. The cries of the children and the parents who died at the hands of their tormentors. All those cries will join together and form the sound of the shofar gadol. But I think if we listen closely, we'll recognize those cries, not as cries of pain and sorrow and anguish and distress, but as cries of laughter and joy and triumph and redemption and victory. May it be speedily in our days. Amen. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.